Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. Have a really cool guest for you this week. I am interviewing Chris Carlson. Now, Chris, he was a member of the White House Press Corps for several decades. We're going to talk all about just what got him um, into you know such a exclusive club. Um, he he was a uh, you know a cameraman, somebody uh, behind the camera, but uh, he's just had a, a firsthand account on. A lot of major things that have happened and then you know met a lot of presidents he worked in the White House under six different presidents shouldn't say under them uh, he worked for a news organization that was covering them definitely not under them that's something we talk about how you know the the media and uh, you know the the different um, administrations were not at all uh, not at all you know necessarily like working in unison it was it's uh it's you know news has an has a job to do which is to get the story even if it's not a a, a story that's uh i guess a pleasant story for administrations and the administration has a has a, a job to do which is obviously lead the country but also kind of put on that uh that air um, we're going to talk a lot about kind of smoke and mirrors and what that happens He's going to tell us some fun stories from his, uh, you know, six different administrations, his favorite president, his least favorite president, some of his favorite stories, just an awesome, awesome conversation. I think you're going to really, really enjoy this one, whether you're huge on, you know, politics, whether you just like a story about someone doing some amazing things. Or, uh, or whether you're just kind of a little bit curious on exactly how the White House works. Uh, this was a really fun one. Uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Chris Carlson. I'm here today with Chris Carlson. Chris, how are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Yeah, so we're, we're going to get into some really interesting, really cool things. But before we get into that career of yours, tell us a little bit about yourself kind of away from the camera. Away from the camera? Well, I'm retired now. I've been retired for several years. Mm -hmm. Two kids, grandchildren, uh, a beautiful wife, and um, you know, uh, we, we <laughs> retirement didn't turn out the way we hoped. You know, we were free for about a year, and then the pandemic all of a sudden made everything a little bit more difficult. But let's kind of get in get into your your career because that's kind of what we what we want to talk about. What what started you know what started your passion for for journalism and and there's this kind of a more distinct type of journalism you do it, which is photojournalism. So talk about kind of that passion for journalism and how you got into photojournalism. When I went to college in 1972, I majored in communications. I had, my brother and I had, we had a dark room at home. We had made little eight millimeter animated movies and things like that. So I sort of had, had like enough credentials to get into one of these communication schools and this was back it was like a cottage industry essentially it's not, not like today i mean everything then was done with film um all the visual arts was done with film so um so i got a degree in uh, communications television radio and film 
And, you know, when I popped out of that, all of a sudden you're, you're out on the street, you know, it's like, okay, now what? I ended up working at a, a, a TV station and, uh, you know, I, there were a variety of jobs there I could have gotten, but you only get the jobs that are open. You know, it's like, you know, when you land out there on the street, it's kind of like uh, the street tells you where you're going. So um, I ended up as a new cameraman um, because that was what it was. One, one of these jobs was open at a station and hey are you interested in that yeah i am so i ended up getting it and uh i had no idea what i was in for um i mean i knew how to expose film without screwing it up all the time you know and if you blew the exposure i mean you could wreck like 300 dollars worth of film was like only 12 minutes of film back then so uh, it was you know and you had to learn how to uh, expose film properly and then you had to learn how to shoot it very efficiently you couldn't waste your shots or like oh let's do that one over you know that sort of thing so um you were really efficient at what you were doing once you learned it and then uh everything morphed over to uh videotape the cameras were really large and around 1977 or so it started going over to videotape and so i I ended up at another tv station and they had all the what they called eng electronic news gathering gear so everything went in that direction and um, I worked at three different affiliates and then ended up getting a job uh, in Washington at ABC News. So, I mean, they were working people. I worked like 12 hours a day for 25 years, essentially. I did get tired of that. I can tell you that much. Mm. Um, but it was fun and I got to travel the world. I got to travel the entire country. I've been to every state. And you would go do these news shoots, which um, back then they were more informational. There's a lot more sort of show and tell type things that were done because um, the medium was a little newer than it is today. I mean, right now, the, all the show and tell stuff, the sort of really interesting stuff is actually on, on YouTube. Um, what part do you play as, you know, the, the camera person in any of the actual, I guess, story? Are you ever involved in any of the interviews or any of the questions, anything like that? Or is it you know, your role just to make sure that it's presented well on film? Yeah, that's a great thing to ask. Um, when I was at local television, you pr- pretty much did a lot of it. Uh, it would be all of the above. You would sometimes go out and get it on your own. <laughs> they would just ask, hey, can you get some footage of this or that? Because they needed you know, sort of a, uh, a chunk to, to fill a, a part in a story. Um, some stories, they, they knew what the story was, and they didn't really have to have a reporter there. So you would work alone. There's a lot of that in local television. When you get up to the networks, um, generally speaking, oh, oh, and by the way, in local TV, when you are working with a reporter, there's a lot of collaboration on, um, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? We could, if I shoot this, we could put it in this way. By the way, you're probably editing the story too in local television. And that was mm-hmm. the case when I was there. It was a lot of fun because I had my hands on the, from beginning to end of, of the whole process. Uh, when you get to the network level, no, it does not work that way. Um, you're sort of like, you know, one person in an assembly line and you just have to, you have to respect that and understand that it can be frustrating because you'd really like to, to get to control the end product, but you don't. And also at the network, you're not there like parsing through the ideas with a reporter like, Hey, if we do this, you could write a section that says such and such and that sort of thing. No, that level of collaboration is not taking place because there's so many sort of defined uh, roles for people. The other thing is all of their scripts are vetted by lawyers before they go in the air. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, so I I can't have a part in, in somebody's script 
at the network level, they pretty much have people grouped as either editorial or not editorial. Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense for sure. And I, I want to kind of because obviously the 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 huge thing is that you were you know part of the the White House press corps and then also the briefing room. How did you get from you know the local station? We already talked about you moving to the network, but then how did you get from from that to you know working working on the White House? Was it as easy as that's just where they placed you? Was that something that took a while to get to? Because I feel like a lot of times you know with you know the White House correspondent that's a that's a step up when it comes to a you know the the front of the camera person anyways right okay well um definitely on the reporting side that's sort of an, a, a real end game gig for a reporter i mean no they don't get they don't get those gigs that's like a real plum hmm. although the funny thing is most of them have no clue how hard the job is going to be and they're going to be working like ridiculous hours and if the story goes in saturday or sunday you're you're working then too on the camera side of it, yeah, they actually were, were sort of particular about what camera crews they had. Like when I walked in the door, they I was like a sort of like a junior uh, a camera guy. You know, you're still like, still like, well, let's see how the kid does. You know, I mean, if you screw it up, you know, they're probably not going to put you in the White House. You know, I mean, it's just the natural thing in any work environment. Like once they get a level of confidence in you, then they push you into more uh, scenarios. Uh, and I think everybody experiences that in whatever kind of job they happen to have. Uh, the people who are doing it already don't want to give it up. I mean, they, they don't want to share it so much. You know, the traveling part of it is, is actually fun. I mean, eventually I did get very tired of that and, and, and did not want to do it anymore, but it was fun to, you know, fly like it may have been thousands of times to go to other countries, but these were all like whirlwind tours. I mean, like, you're seeing them like looking out the window kind of thing. And then, then you get on the ground, they put you on a bus and they take you to wherever, or, or sometimes you're on a helicopter. You've, if you're in the travel pool, which there's a group of like about 14 people who always are going with the president, they'll put you on the hell on, on your own helicopter and you'll fly and do that stuff. I wasn't always crazy about those helicopter rides. Uh, they were, they were energizing and fun, but um, I was always worried about gravity. <laughs> there's a lot of fun doing it. I never, I never imagined I was going to end up in that. Um, everything that I got in, in this line of work was literally like hitting a crossroads and I went to left or right. And it led to another thing. And frankly, you know, so much was just luck and, you know, like the, whatever opportunity was just there. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I want to kind of talk about, two things here. One, I guess that when you, your first time going to the white house, doing this stuff, what was that like? And then also just, you know, based on what you were just saying, I know that there's, you know, for most networks, there's a couple people that do the, the role. Um, you know, there may be a chief white house correspondent, but you know, there's, there's other people too. How many camera people for each network's normally involved? Uh, where I worked, we had like, generally about six camera crews that rotated the white house, but you'd have two in there every day. So, you know, the rotations came around pretty rapidly and you would do like a month at a time, any more than a month really started to get to be too much because, you know, you'd pretty much be working 12 hour days. If it was a president that did a lot of traveling, you might be working like seven days a week for a couple of weeks, whatever. I mean, it, it can get really crazy. 
I think the rest of the question got away from me. Yeah, it's because I put too much into one question. That's 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 not your fault. That's mine. My other part of it was just about the the. It had nothing to do with what the other question. Just the first time that you oh. you went to the White House, your first experience, what it was like. Yeah, I think I went in there and I had to film Reagan in the East Room doing something. And I got to tell you, I was in awe. I was like, like I was, you know, like 27 or something like that. And Ronald Reagan, you know, he was a professional actor and he, he had done a TV show that was on like every Saturday and during my uh, childhood and, uh, you know, early teen years. And I had seen it, you know, uh, many, many times. It was called Death Valley Days or something like that. And it was so I mean, I had this guy in my mind. He was like he was like a movie star. And um, so I was in awe. And, you know, I think the funny thing was I, I then also got sent out somewhere there in the very beginning to film him leaving Andrews Air Force Base. And so, you know, he, you know, you get out there, they put you in this place. It's sort of out on the tarmac, a little fenced in area. And um, then he ch- helicopters in from the White House, which is, you know, like maybe uh, uh, 10 or 12 miles away. And so he, a helicopter comes in and it lands. And then he and his wife, Nancy, the first lady, get off the helicopter. And they walk over to the plane and there's some Air Force guys at the, at the bottom of the stairs. And he salutes. They all salute each other, you know, and it all looks really cool and fun. And then he goes up the stairs. They get to the top of the stairs and they turn around and uh, he's got his arm around her. And they're waving, they're waving. And I had seen this shot many times uh, just as a TV viewer. And I thought there's just a huge crowd. And so I was, you know, I knew there wasn't a crowd over there, but I looked over anyhow and there was like, you know, 12 people standing by the fence. And that's when all of a sudden I realized it's the illusion, you know, and that, you know, like, you know, he, first he was a professional actor. I mean, you, you wouldn't waste those moments. You don't get to the top of, the stair to get on your own, you know, most incredible plane in the country and not wave like there's, you know, 10,000 people out there. So that's when I realized, number one, he was a great actor. Number two, there was always an illusion. And number three, they would always take advantage of it. And that's not just him. I mean, all of them, you know, do that. But the first time I saw it, I was just uh, stupefied, you know, (laughs) Oh, I, I can only imagine for sure. And I want to kind of get to some of the questions I wouldn't have probably typically asked you. I don't like to make people pick favorites of, of much of anything, but you actually gave me some of these questions. So I want to ask you which president, and we haven't really mentioned it, but you covered six different presidents all the way from Reagan up to Trump. So a lot of presidents and which, uh, which one was your, your, the most fun to, to photograph? All right. The most fun. This is a, this is a, no contest was George Herbert Walker Bush. Okay. Bush, the 41st president, because he was a sportsman. He, um, they had a house in Maine on the coast that, that point up there, it's a Kenny Bunkport, Maine is, 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 you know, it's one of the most sort of prolific points with a really nice house on it. And he had a cigarette boat and he would drive out in that thing in the open ocean. And he just bomb along, you know, leaping from wave top to wave top to go fishing to wherever the fish were they'd find out on the radio where the fish were and the first year up there we we all had chartered our own boats out of the little harbor there in kenny bungport and so he had a, like this little flotilla of of news media camera guys chasing him around of course we couldn't keep up because that the boat of his would go like you know 50 miles an hour or something it was 
a crazy ride. But we would, you know, he'd finally stop, we'd catch up, and then he'd have the rod out, he'd be fishing, and we'd try to get pictures of him fishing. And it was all, there was all this kinetic energy associated with it. So it was fun as a, as a, a camera person, it was fun. There was a real challenge. You were, you weren't just fighting, um, can I get close enough to make a picture? You were fighting the, the, uh, the waves in the ocean. People were getting sick out there too. They got, they got seasickness. There were people throwing up. You go, there were people in boats like all day long with no bathrooms, you know, and they had to figure out what to do. So he was absolutely the most fun to cover because he was a sportsman. Um, and they even had like a press party up there each summer and they'd like, like let people, they'd take him out in his boat. It was called Fidelity and you could take a ride in it. I never was able to take a ride because there was always a line. And I was like, oh, the rest of them. I mean, there was some kinetic energy in some of them. Clinton used to jog a lot. Uh, George Bush uh, 43 jogged. I mean, there were some sort of, you know, kinetic things that made using a camera a little more interesting, but but he was the standout in terms of native fun, you know. No, it sounds like it for, for sure. And, you, and we talk about, you know, the most fun to photograph was all, I mean, was all your work, it was with a, like a video camera. You're not taking actual still photos, correct? That's correct. I had a, you know, shoulder mounted video camera, you know, like a 25 pound monster with like a 20 to one zoom lens. Now in the travel pool, we would have like a whole bunch of still photo photographers with us. And they're kind of going for a different thing because they're trying to make the, um, that he's, they're trying to get that moment, you know, so they'll shoot like hundreds of pictures and they're just looking for that moment. Whereas TV, we're looking for the moment. Plus if there's a reporter there, they'll probably ask a question. And, um, they're so the, so they're going for the, uh, gotcha or the jugular vein or whatever. And just, they're trying to get information let's face it, no president is totally uh, relaxed with the news media because he just doesn't know he or she, uh, but the person doesn't know what they might ask and, you know, causing for difficult moments, you know, I can, um, I can, I can only imagine that. And that kind of into my next question, how much of, of it was really a, a versus mentality or how much did you guys actually work together, like the, you know, the president's staff, the White House staff, how much of it was them kind of helping you guys say, this is what's going to happen now? Or is it really just you're along for the ride and get what you can get? How, how did that work? Oh, no, that's, uh, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, if you're in the White House itself and there's a photo opportunity, Oval Office, they literally will take, you know, like a whole bunch of cameras in. Um, it's, it's best if they do one wave first with stills and then a separate wave with video because it's, it's too many people if they're all in one wave. On trips, they would always publish a little booklet, 10 or 20 pages in it. And like each sort of time increment, it would tell you, you know, like at this point, POTUS, POTUS which is president of the United States, will do this and do that, do that. And they will say what kind of coverage is like if it's a, if he's speaking uh, camera platform, you know, 60 feet back, they usually detail those types of things. Um, if, and also that there would be an audio malt, which is a, uh, a feed of the podium and a malt is like a box that might have like 20 outputs. So, so people could plug in their, uh, their cords and catch the sound on that. Um, so you, they would detail all that type of information. So when you're on a trip, uh, you, you go through that booklet pretty carefully. I would always, um, uh, 
I go through it and circle the important things that applied to me. Uh, so yeah, they did, you know, it, they would guide you. It was sort of like they, I don't want to call it like you had a relationship. You, the relationship was, here's what you can do. Go do it. Now, um, beyond that, that's it. If you, if you were going to misbehave or not, you know, they would usually have stanchions and ways to sort of corral you. So you wouldn't like flood the guy, that sort of thing. Um, there's, there's always a friction uh, point. Okay. There's always one. It doesn't matter who the president is. I know people think that some, some presidents have cushy relationships with the press and so forth. And I don't think that's true. Um, there's, it's always adversarial. They, I mean, they may go through streaks where things are running really swell, and, but you know, you never know. You're gonna wake up the next day and there's some line of questioning that's gonna come up, and it's not gonna be so swell. Yeah, and that seems to be the, the thing that I don't know. I feel like sometimes gets lost that, every, I mean, the the role of of journalism and the role of of the news and and everyone who covers it is to ask the tough questions. I don't think they're necessarily out to get one person over the other. It's just honestly probably out to out to not necessarily get, but to get the tough questions answered from anyone. It doesn't matter. I don't think they've got any animosity towards, you know, the, the person that they're trying to cover. Yeah. Well, actually what's really interesting is <laughs> here's a funny analogy. Um, I, you know, the movie star Wars, <laughs> you've probably seen that it's an ancient film by now, but there's a bar scene in it where there's like uh, sort of every life form from the galaxy in the bar. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a hilarious thing to see. Well, one of my uh, coworkers uh, always equated the white house briefing room to the uh, bar scene in star Wars. Like there was every possible life form in there as far as what sort of news uh, was represented. Um, you know, like I was in broadcasting and so broadcasting's regulated. I mean, it, it, it's largely deregulated now, but they still are regulated. The FCC regulates broadcasting and they're licensed. So um, you could potentially lose your television station license by doing the wrong things. So they can't, the broadcasters have always had to subscribe to uh, some fairness rules, whereas there are other areas that are not regulated. For instance, cable is not regulated. There's no content regulations on that. I mean, if um, if you're a newspaper, um, newspapers really aren't regulated. They were regulated in the past as, as to be able to own a television or a radio station in the same market. A lot of that has gone away, but they're not in there regulating their content, like whether there's any fairness in, in their content. Like, I think it's fair to say that broadcasters, if you look at their product, and, and I've been a, a party to a lot of it, they generally report the horse race they don't they don't try to tell you the winner is except maybe on election day but you know as as far as like the scrimmages they pretty much show the race or the the battle now everybody outside of broadcasting doesn't have to worry about losing the license so um internet media they can editorialize all they want i mean there's no there's no lid on it there's no regulation there so you have to understand that not every uh news uh organization is the same thing. Some things are news and then some outfits are editorial. But the question is, as a reader or a viewer, do you know which one they are? Are they actually um, trying to just give you the horse race or are they actually trying to tell you who's supposed to, you know, cross the finish line? So 
I think that's one thing that's become very blurred because there's a, so much more media now that the internet has given birth to. Right. Yeah. And I want to, I want to get to, get to that. I want to ask you kind of your advice for people who, you know, consume news now, but I want to kind of stick right now with, with the presidential thing and ask you another question that you had, had given. Um, and that is a few things that might surprise us about some, some recent presidents. Might surprise about them. Oh, you want some stories? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. Oh gosh. Um, well, let me see. Um, well, you know, again, like Reagan, he was he was a great communicator. He he, and by the way, they were uh, everybody in town was afraid of him. Capitol Hill, they were afraid of him because he was the great communicator. You know, the Democrats had the House back then, and they they went along with a lot of the things that President Reagan had proposed because he his communication skills were incredible. And he would go into the, the Oval Office and do, he did a lot of Oval Office addresses. He was uh, just amazing in there. By the way, since then, I see most of the other presidents are afraid to do it in the Oval Office because they can't live up to the, uh, the, uh, the watermark that he created. They just aren't communicators on that level. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, Obama, the guy's oratory skills were just incredible. Um, the only person who came in a close uh, second to him was Clinton. I mean, Clinton was quite a speaker. They, both of them could deliver uh, really motivational speeches where you, you could sort of listen to them and get sort of, they were so um, hopeful for the future, really inspirational. George Bush, 43, the poor guy, you know, he had, he, he had 9-11 and he never could shake 9-11. Obama had the... Uh, the ACA that, you know, the Obamacare, um, he got that through and that, and then catching bin Laden after that, I have to tell you by and large, no one covered him. I mean, with the whole second term, we were there, but we weren't putting anything on the air a lot of the time. Then, uh, all right, here's, here's the, the doozy Trump got, got in there and he was totally different. I mean, he was, he used social media and he just blew the, the regular news media right away. I mean, it was kind of interesting because, he wouldn't, they, they really didn't even have briefers in the briefing room most of the time. And they had some, but they almost never briefed. And he would quite often, when he'd do his helicopter departures, he'd be, you know, flying somewhere to give a speech or whatever. He'd come over and he'd talk to the media when they would be out there waiting to film the departure. And um, he would do like sort of an impromptu press conference. But the thing that was really interesting about it was because if he had done them in the briefing room, there's a camera like, behind the president, a cutaway camera. So you can get a picture of the reporter asking the question when he's asking. And then see, there's two cameras. There's the, the one on the president and the one picking whoever's is asking a question. Well, with the helicopter thing, since there's sort of a rope line and all the media is behind that, there's no second camera to get the picture of the reporters. So the reporters were completely out of it. It was like Trump all the time, hundred percent of the time. He like, I got to believe that the reporters were furious about that. He, he completely aced them out of their role. He could just move on. If he didn't like a question, he would just sidestep and go to somebody else eight feet away. And, you know, it was just sort of like, oh, next, you know. Uh, so, you know, there were all kinds of different styles. Um, I, you know, he, the use of Twitter was like so disruptive to the news media. I mean, they would wake up in the morning, there'd be like, you know, five or six tweets. They they'd be you know, people be ready to like uh, go to lunch and all of a sudden there's the tweets are coming out and it's like yeah you, oh I'm ready to go home no hey we need you to do this because he just tweeted I I got this all the time so it was really 
it was crazy. It was insane. Um, he just, he stepped over the media and I guess it's going to be that way from here on. If somebody wants it that way. Oh gosh, there's, there's almost too many things to remember here. Does, does that cover it? Yeah, that covers it for sure. And I think that the only, because you, you talked about the one term president. I, if I, if I know, if I saw your career correctly, I think you were maybe gone before Trump, you know, was deemed a one term president. So I just wonder right. what it was like, you know, as in, in the, the first Bush white house, those last three months when you're kind of a lame duck, what's the mood in a white house that is just, wow. you know, they've already, they've already lost. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Well, the first thing you notice when the, you have an outgoing president is all day long, these uh, white house or executive office building, which is right next door to it, employees are bringing friends through and giving them like VIP tours. Like, like, Hey, I'm only going to be working here another couple of months. So I'm going to bring my family in and show them, you know, the gate, uh, give them a, you know, personal tour through the parts of the white house that we're allowed to walk through or that sort of things. So you see all that stuff, but um, generally like the news dies down. Like you just stop putting things on the air. I can tell you Bush, uh, 43 <laughs> when he was on his last few months the uh, the banks were uh were crashing we had the the 08 bank crisis and banks were failing and he really looked disparaged because what was happening for about three or four weeks there these banks would be failing and then they would cut the, the treasury department and uh, people on wall street would cut a deal for one bank to buy another bank to shore them up and that sort of thing. And then they, he'd have to come out with his treasury secretary on Monday mornings. And this happened three or four times. I know because I had to film them and they would have to say, uh, well, we just engineered this deal to save such and such bank over the weekend and other banks buying them. And so you could tell he, he like he had Paulson, his, his, his treasury secretary do all the speaking. Bush just sort of stood there like as if to look like I don't want to be here for this. This wasn't supposed to happen, you know? Uh, and he would just largely remain silent. So you'd see that sort of thing. I can tell you when, here's a funny one. Um, when Obama, he, here's a real odd one. The last day of a presidency, when the, when the new one is getting sworn in, if you happen to be at the white house and I've been there several times for this, it's like, it's like slack tide when the, uh, when they, they're up at the Capitol doing the uh, swearing-in business, there's like no president. There's no one in the White House. There's no president there. They couldn't care less what you, you could You could walk across the front lawn and, and they wouldn't uh, send the, the dogs after you or whatever. You know, they, there's no president there. You know, I know the Obama White House, they had, um, there's a door from the briefing room that goes into what's called the lower press office, where that's where you can sort of go in and talk to some of the press handlers if, if there's a reason to go talk to them. And they had a wall in there that you could see through the doorway. And they had all these like front pages of newspapers on that wall, you know, from all these great headlines that pertain to his presidency. And the funny thing was in the morning, they were all there. They were all there, you know, and I took a picture of it with my phone because I knew that those are coming down, man. Those are, those are going to be gone, you know. And, you know, then the, uh, the cleaning staff at some point during the day is, you know, they're told all that stuff whoosh, out of there, get rid of it, you know. I mean, yeah, people leave stuff behind, you know, it's a joke or it's funny or whatever. Get it out of there. And sure enough, they were all gone by that uh, afternoon when the Trumps were going to uh, come into the house. All gone. It was quite funny. And then the funny thing was when the, 
you know, they swear them in up at the Capitol and they, they come down Pennsylvania Avenue in a parade. It, it takes quite a long time, even after the swearing in, for the president to actually get to the White House. They put a huge reviewing stand there at the White House for these things, for the inaugural days. And so the president, usually the new president comes in, usually, you know, like goes to the bathroom, you know, changes clothes, whatever, has a sandwich or something like that. Then goes out and sits in this reviewing stand for a couple of hours and watches the rest of the parade come by. It's really like an old Americana kind of thing. And when the Trumps got there, um, I could see when they, 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 they pulled in the driveway and went in the White House and then all the rooms were lit up upstairs and we were out on the front lawn waiting for them to come out to the reviewing stand. We were, I was like a pool camera for that. And uh, you could see when they got in there, all these sort of silhouettes uh, against the curtains of people sort of running around like, like, hey, check this out. You know, like, here's this room or that room or whatever, you know, it's kind of funny to watch, you know, because um, we would all know what the rooms were because you know what the floor plan of the place is. And so um, not that you've been on the second floor, which is the residence part. And that's what I'm really talking about, the second floor at this point. Um, but you're aware of what what rooms are up there, you know, and their general location. So it's amusing to watch that sort of thing. You know, hey, you get in the White House, trust me, you're going to be running around going, man, look at this thing, you know. I'm sure. And what was it like for the, the press with all these new, you know, presidents you've covered, you know, six different ones. Was it always kind of like, I wonder what, you know, wonder how this is going to be, what their relationship's going to be. Do Are they the ones that kind of set the rules for the road or is the press the ones kind of more like this is the way that things are done or how's that? Oh, every new white house has its way of doing things. And it's just really what they want. In some cases they want, some of them want, like you'll, it's the types of uh, shots, you, the types of locations they might have had the president speaking in, in certain rooms. Uh, an, an incoming president will deliberately mix that up and make the shots look different. Like maybe instead of having the podium against this wall, they'll, they'll put it running the other, the length of the room to make it look different because they want it to visually, you know, seem different. I want to ask you now. This again, this question I would have. I would have never made you answer, but it was on your, your list. And what is, that is, who was your favorite president? Yeah, actually, that was a trick question because I get asked that question. You know, you meet somebody at a party or something. And they're like, hey, well, which one did you like the most? And like, okay. I never like was ranking anything in my mind that way ever. And my answer has always been, well, I'm not sure I liked any of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, like I didn't, you know, necessarily put them there or anything. I, you know, for, in a lot of cases, they made my life miserable. You know, every time that one of them would have a crisis, I'd be working, you know, 12 or more hours a day and expected to come in on the weekends too. So I was never liking somebody that much. <laughs> um, I mean, do they chum around with people a little bit? Yet yeah, presidents will chum around with, with the camera people a little bit because to have a little bit of rapport with people and, and make things a little bit of fun. But as far as liking them, like a president, you know, it gets down to like, what is, um, what are they really doing while they're in there? And I can tell you, you know, I'm not sure a lot of people even know until the presidency is, is over with, you know, who, what, what agenda did they go in with? I mean, who are they really representing? Um, again, I'm not sure people know, and I don't think you can tell by, by just standing there 12 feet away with a camera, you know, like, um, it's just, that's why I, I can honestly say, I'm not sure I liked any of them, um, because, well, they all did 
things that did, didn't work out, you know, they all had, you know, ideas that, that probably weren't great ideas. And then they all had successful ideas as well. So that's my answer. I'm not sure I liked any of them. Yeah. Well, it's your questions. I mean, the one obvious though you, you want to ask, but it's not on your list is maybe you, one wasn't your favorite, but was there a least favorite? Uh, well, like I said, a few minutes ago, um, when they have a crisis, it becomes your crisis too, because all of a sudden you have to, all of a sudden one day it turns on a dime and you have to, you're working way more hours and it, it goes on for weeks or months. You know, the Clintons definitely had more sort of crisis situations um, because they, they had more scandals, <laughs> um, but all of them end up with scandals. Every one of them. It's just a question of how much um, do the scandals get legs, you know, and do they, they sort of go out of control. Some were harder than others. I mean, uh, I'm glad I was only there for two years of Trump. I missed the two impeachments. I don't think I would have been up for, for two of those. Uh, it was, it was, you know, the time I was in there with it, it was so radically different from the get-go. It wasn't like any of the other five in any way that, you know, you know, I was kind of the, at the end of my patience with a lot of where the business was and a lot of the work. So I was, I was very happy to, to leave at the beginning of 2019. Yeah. So, yeah, that make that makes some sense for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I, I understand that for sure, that you, it, it matters more about how often they made you, you know, miss, miss seeing your family rather than actually you know, their, their personalities. I, I understand yeah, and that. I didn't, I didn't really feel that I was, you know, like intellectually equipped to decide whether I liked what they were doing. You know, a lot of it at the time when they make the case for something, they, there's a certain amount of logic to it. Um, Look, all of them have some level of charisma. Otherwise, they never would have made it to the top national office. Okay. Even if you didn't vote for them, you, you discover there's actually components of their personality that's, they're, that you know, entertaining and fun. So um, once you keep seeing that over and over, that, you know, you can be, I don't want to say fooled by somebody's personality, but you can be, you can focus on things that aren't necessarily relevant. So what I'm trying to say is, uh, I think, you know, you, you hear this line about history judges people. And I think in the end, that's, you got to stand back a little bit. And that's, that's kind of what happens. I want to ask you one more question kind of about this, this area. And then I want to kind of get to your book and, and things like that. So you obviously your life revolved around, you know, the White House and these presidents for a long time, six different presidents for over 30 years. And you talked about them kind of, some of them being, you know, more chummy or, or buddying up than, than others. Every one of them had you at least spoken to, was there anyone you covered for four, eight years that you never even exchanged a single word with? No, I think I was able to have, you know, some really, it's small talk is what I'm saying. Like you, maybe you film an interview with them and you, there's just a little bit of small talk around that, you know, again, George Bush, 41 was more fun because like, I remember one time he was like, you know, we thought he was going to come out blue fishing and we were out there and he, he, he wasn't really coming out. So the guys that we were chartered the boat from said, Hey, let's get the rods out and start fishing. And we're like, okay, that's great. You know? So we did that. And then uh, the next day and we caught fish, <laughs> Okay, we caught fish right out by his house. And then the next day, I think it was a Sunday and he was at church and 
he came out of church and our reporter, Ann Compton talking to me, he's like, you know, five or six feet away from me. And, and she she says, Hey, uh, my cameraman, Chris Carlson and his, his sound person, Melissa over there, were catching fish yesterday. And all of a sudden he's asking us, where were you catching the fish? And they were telling him, you know, so that, I mean, that was always fun. Um, but you know, it's all on a level of small talk and, you know, generally speaking, you're just, you're like about 12 feet away from these people and they sort of come and do their thing and they walk away and that's it. I mean, again, you don't know them. I mean, like, I think a lot of people are mistaken to think like there's a like relationship. No, not really. Generally speaking, no. I mean, but there's a, a professionalism and a cordial relations. And I think that people mistake that for thinking there's like a relationship, you know? Right. I got you. Let's talk about your, your book. You, you, you wrote a book kind of detailing a little bit about your experience or one instance, but talk about that book. All right. Well, you know, when I realized I was, I was going to be retiring, um, I started writing down a bunch of my stories because I, I wanted to do them before I was actually, you know, had left because I knew I'd probably want to get most of it in the rearview mirror and, you know, I wouldn't want to sit down and write at that point. So I'd written a whole bunch and I, I did have to write nine 11 cause it's, it was historic. I mean, it's just, it's something they're going to be talking about a hundred years from now. And so, you know, since I had been on the trip that week, he went to Florida uh, to do a, uh, a reading demonstration with some school children. He, he had this thing called uh, no child left behind. It was some legislation to change the way education was done, at least on the federal level and uh, funding and that sort of thing. And so he was trying to sell that. And he was working with people in, on, in Congress to try to get it done. Anyhow, so we went to Florida and he was uh, supposed to do this, attend a reading demonstration at school. And literally while he was en route to the, the classroom in, in the motorcade, that's when the 9-11 events unfolded. So when they got there, um, they really, they just knew a plane had hit one of the World Trade Centers. They had no idea it was a passenger liner. Uh, they thought it was like a Cessna or something, you know, and I think that's what most of us thought as well until we saw it on, on the TV screen. And then uh, he was in the classroom uh, during the reading demonstration when the second plane hit. And then his chief of staff uh, came over and um, whispered in his ear that uh, the second tower had been hit and, and they were both large planes and that we were under attack. And he, that's where he was, you know, sort of had this uh, moment of, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, and, you know, uh, he, he was, he, he was a very polite man. So he let the kids go on. He, he took about five or six minutes when he could, was able to exit the, the uh, demonstration he did. And he went on, got briefed on the thing and then did a, uh, uh, a statement, uh, at the school before he had left. They were, we were pretty convinced, you know, maybe he was under attack too. He got an air force one and they took off and they went to Two different Air Force bases, Barksdale in Louisiana, and then Offutt up in uh, I think that's Nebraska, and um, because I guess they they thought it was safe refuge there, and they weren't even sure they didn't even know if they're going back to Washington D.C. that day. He ended up going back, and he did an Oval Office address that evening. So I detail that whole story, um, the parts of it I was involved in it with directly, and the parts that I wasn't because as a pool member, you rotate in and out of the, the pools each day. So I knew all the players who had the front row seat on all the different parts of it. So I had my stories and I had their stories mixed in. Um, and then, and then I follow it through till that Saturday where he, 
uh, on Friday, he had gone to ground zero. And then he, on Saturday, he's briefing his cabinet on what happened at ground zero or what he saw at ground zero. And they're at Camp David in this, um, there's a little sort of enclave up there um, of nice little houses in the woods. And, and, you know, we did a photo op in there with him and he's explaining, and I was the pool camera, his only video camera in there. And he's um, talking about what he'd seen, the destruction and so forth. And uh, then when he, he alluded to who may have done it, he said, uh, you know, we're going to smoke him out of his hole. And I hadn't even heard of the name bin Laden yet. I think most people had, and I think that started picking up steam after this. They obviously knew it was him and they knew he was hiding out in caves and Afghanistan, but we didn't know that the public didn't know that. And so when he said, we're going to smoke him out of his hole, I just, I literally got goosebumps. I, I never heard anything like that before. I'm thinking like, who, what hole, where, what, what? And it was just bizarre. Of course, during the next month, he used that phrase about three or four more times. And it was equally as spooky, you know, but we were learning more then about bin Laden and where he might be and that sort of thing. You know, whereas the first few days of the thing, it was literally just the hijackers' identities and the FBI sort of painting a picture of how these guys uh, got into the country and commandeered these planes. So I wrote about these the first five days of it, and uh, I thought it was interesting and historic. And uh, you know, I, I put it out as an ebook just because, to me, it was that notable. Um, and it's just as simple as that. There were other people on the trip, but I don't think anyone else. <laughs> put it into a little book. Certainly historic. And, and the, the seat that you, that you witnessed it from is, is one that most people very, uh, most people for, by a large amount, didn't, didn't experience it from. So I think that's definitely an interesting book to read. And I want to get to how people are going to find it. But before we get to kind of those, those closing questions, uh, last question, I kind of want to ask you, we've already kind of touched on it a little bit, uh, but just being, somebody who's helped kind of show us the news, you know, obviously today the news is quite, quite interesting, definitely when it comes to cable and sometimes even broadcast news, but it's, it's an interesting world. So I want you to kind of just to tell us kind of your advice for, for people who consume news, um, you know, what, what lens we should be looking at things at. Well, I think that you need to immediately discern whether what you're consuming is actual news where it's like a pin and pad reporter or, you know, uh, boots on the ground, like was the person there? Okay. Because if they weren't there, then it's, it might be editorial and so much stuff is editorial now. And, you know, again, I, you know, it's not like you can put the toothpaste back in the tube, but the internet lends itself to people just sitting at their desktops, cutting and pasting, and then putting in their own blurb in the middle of it. And they, they weren't there. They, 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 they had no part of covering it, but they're now editorializing. So it's really easy to make a soapbox out of everything. You know, what are you consuming stuff that was from the people who were there? So I would say if the answer to that is yes, you're one step closer to having a more of the authentic story. The other part of it is, is, well, are they, you know, what type of media are they, you know, are they an internet media? Well, I'll tell you a very few of the internet medias are there, you know, the, th the things I was at, not many of them attend them. They just don't have the money. Um, I mean, it'd be nice if Facebook hired a thousand reporters, but, the, but that's not the case. 
so you know what type of media was it if it's broadcast it's probably going to be straightforward if it's cable they can say anything they want and the the big news cycles and the the big editorial wars really are coming out of cable um if it's print i don't know it could be it's it's probably if you're reading from the ap or reuters if it's from the wire service if you're reading their copy that's in a paper it's it's authentic i mean they're pretty much giving you what happened um so you sort of have to vet it on your own i'm sorry there's so many possible sources now i mean i try to remind myself when i read something on the internet to first look up at the top of the page and see like who wrote it and where what organization have i even heard of this organization and by the way is there a date on it half the time there's no date on these articles how often have you read something and you're like wait a minute and then you look and you find out wait a minute, that was two years ago mm. or something crazy like that so the internet is just not um you really have to sort of check what you're seeing you know in, in my view i slip up sometimes i read something like that that can't have been yesterday you know and then i find out it was or it wasn't so you got to figure out is it real news or is it editorial and i would say the internet has caused so much editorial that it's it's even causing some of the real news guys to editorialize more like the new york times has nine editorials in it every day the washington post has six editorials in it every day um i don't think they need six or nine editorials um i think they're confusing uh and i actually try not to read them at all uh once in a while one of them tricks me you know i get in there and read it but I wouldn't get my news off of Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Just just in kind of the funny thing you said, I mean, Facebook is is famous for for that whole date thing where people, you you know, I have a whole group of friends that have posted something like, you know, sad, some movie star died. And then like, and then I see like, do you realize this is an article from like five years ago? This person's been dead for five years and all of a sudden right. now you've decided, Oh, <laughs> rip whoever. So yeah, I, I think that that's a, a big thing for sure. And I, I don't think regardless of what, what side of the aisle you, you are, I feel like everyone can see that uh, Facebook is a, an interesting place and you really got to vet things. If you're, if you really want to get good, good information for sure. So, I mean, the, the next question I want to ask you, and in, in wrapping things up, how can people get your book? And then just to kind of piggyback off of that, um, you know, because that's something you, you did right at, at the end of your, your career. If you've been retired for a, a few years, we talked about it in the very beginning, kind of what, uh, you know, what, what you've been up to. But I do want to know kind of what, uh, what the future holds for you. Oh, I don't really know. I mean, I, uh, you know, I wrote the book and then... Um... I had read that, you know, a good way to, by the way, books, you know, if, if no one knows it's there, they don't know it's there. So I read this thing that said, you know, a good way to promote your book is to, do, you know, podcasting. And I thought, well, let me look into that. So I've been doing some of these and it's really nice that somebody's, you know, curious enough to ask you these questions. Um, so I've been trying this. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I got to tell you, I'm just trying to get through, uh, uh, and have fun with my kids and my grandkids. That's been a little more difficult the last couple of years because of the pandemic. Uh, I don't, you know, once you retire, you, you, the nice thing is, is you kind of go like, well, I don't have to have any plans, you know? So, um, I mean, you see that airplane back there that got into like flying, uh, drones around. I'm not that good with that thing. I mean, that, you know, that if you crash the drone flies itself, 
um, that thing will crash. Mm. Um, so I've had some fun doing that. I'm kind of, if I was 20 years old, I'd probably have better reaction times for, uh, you know, the video game style reaction times for that sort of stuff. Now I don't have any huge plans. Just, uh, I'd like the country to open back up and, uh, the whole virus thing to, I hope we're at the beginning of the end of that. I hope I'm being optimistic. Just like to get back to hanging out with people and, uh, you know, having a beer somewhere or whatever and having people over for dinner, that sort of thing. Yeah. I didn't plan on, you know, hanging out in the house this long and, you know, I'm, you know, the DC area here and it's, it's crappy weather. It's winter time. I would have liked to have spent, you know, the entire winter somewhere else. And I, you know, I, we probably would have done that by now, but you know, then these, these waves of the, when the wave of the virus thing clicks up, it's like, well, would you rather, would you rather get sick here or get sick someplace where you don't even have a doctor, you know? So, you know, you got to think about some of these things. I might, I'm, I wish I was a little more free spirited than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell us how we can, we can find your book and whatever connection points you have. All right. Well, the book is on all the ebook guys. It's on uh, Amazon Kindle, uh, Apple Books, uh, Barnes and Noble, Kobo. There's a few others. I mean, I, it's it's on all of them. Okay, so you can find it there, and it's just an ebook. I don't have a print. You know, to to put out a printed copy, you actually have to submit a whole other, differently formatted manuscript. So that's a whole other piece of work. So I haven't done that. I'm kind of hardly. You know, I'm not like really immersed in uh, social media. So, um, but I do, I did open a Twitter account and it's, my handle is um, top photo nine, the top number nine, top photo nine. nine at top photo nine. So if somebody wants to shout out to me that they could do it on that. I so gotcha. Uh, gotcha. that's pretty much it, you know? <laughs> well, I'll tell you it's it, for pretty much it. There's that you've covered a lot. We packed a lot into this six presidencies, a, a whirlwind around the world. It's, it's, it's been an interesting conversation. I really appreciate your time. Hey, you're welcome. I, I have fun talking to people and uh, I don't mind telling my stories. So thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So that was Chris Carlson. What an amazing guy who's lived just an amazing life. Uh, he did have a, a few technical issues, some audio issues. Hopefully that didn't, uh, didn't limit uh, your ability to enjoy uh, just a fascinating conversation. Not a lot of people who have been able to, you know, live the life that he's lived and be able to cover so many different presidents, have the stories that he has to share. I, I really enjoyed speaking with him. I'm, I'm very uh, honored to have uh, been able to, uh, to have him on the show. Please do go check out his book on Amazon. He just mentioned that covers, you know, his first-hand experience with with 9-11 and and working uh you know for the media during during that uh during that time um check that out for sure i think uh, it, it's, it's just a, a really interesting book that uh not a lot of people have that perspective i hope you you got a lot from this you know this podcast is never one that's going to be uh overtly political I think that this conversation, you know, has allowed us to talk about both sides of the aisle. Every every president has had their issues, whether they're, you know, Democrat, Republican, and, and anything else. You know, we've only had those two at the moment. But uh, yeah, I, I think that you can you can gain something regardless of your your political leanings here. Uh, but uh, really enjoyed speaking with him. 
Really glad that you decided to listen. If this is your first time listening, please do go, uh, I guess, rate it. Give us the five stars. Leave a review. Always appreciate that. Spotify, Apple. Uh, appreciate those for sure. If you've listened for a long time, still haven't done that, please go and do that. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely appreciate those. Um, go check us out on Instagram, Not Enough Podcasts. Follow there. Any any interaction, I always really enjoy lis- uh, hearing from listeners. But uh, yeah, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.